Welcome to Educational Alpha. I'm Bill Kelly, CEO of Kai Association and your host, bringing you on the ground conversations with business leaders, educators, and industry colleagues from around the globe. Educational Alpha is sponsored by iCapital, the financial technology company with the mission to power the world's alternative investment marketplace. Part innovator, part educator, and part navigator of the alternatives industry, iCapital offers intuitive, scalable digital solutions that have transformed how private market and hedge fund investments are bought and sold. With iCapital, financial advisors, wealth managers, and asset managers around the world now have access to everything they need to deliver the return and diversification potential of alternatives to high net worth investors. To learn more, visit iCapital.com. Welcome back to season two of Educational Alpha. In our first episode of the season, we sit down with Josh Lerner, a renowned professor at Harvard Business School and an economics and private equity expert. They explore the complex world of private equity, discussing its evolution, the blend of public and private markets, and the future of investment strategies. Josh shares his journey into private equity and provides a deep dive into commitment strategies, manager selection, and the influence of generative AI in the industry. Join us as we explore these intricate topics and uncover valuable insights with one of the leading minds in the field. Josh Lerner, welcome to Educational Alpha. Thank you so much. We're going to talk about context on many subjects, not the least of which is private equity. But when it comes to the two of us, I went back and checked my email this morning. And I joined Kai just about 10 years ago. And in 2014, so almost 10 years ago to the day, we gave you the 2014 Kaya Research Award. And you were early and often contributing to our curriculum. We still talk with you quite a bit throughout the Kaya imprimatur in terms of the curriculum, but but thank you for all that you do, first and foremost, for giving back. It's a pleasure. It's a great organization. Thank you. So you've done a lot. You're oft quoted and out in the public markets, public markets being speaking about the private markets. But I guess to put it simply, you're a professor at HBS and an economist, and I don't think I could ever get into HBS, but at least once a season, I try to have one of the learned from the leafy campus of Harvard come on. I had Randy Cohen last season, who's become a good friend, and now I'm starting off season two with Josh Lerner. But maybe you've accomplished a lot. Maybe you could just try to sum up how you ended up, where you are today, and then we'll move into the wonderful world of private equity. That sounds great. Like presumably many academics sort of stumbled into this area, but had been in college, got very interested in issues around innovation policy, and in particular, how ideas got developed and evolved and what governments could do to address them, and ended up subsequently at, in Washington at Brookings and Capitol Hill. At the time, was obviously date me, but there was a lot of worry about things like Japan as number one. But at the same time, there was also a lot of policy innovation going on in terms of things like the Bayh-Dole Act, which facilitated the creation of university-based startups, the Small Business Innovation Research Program that funded a lot of early startups of that era. I got the awareness that not only were we pretty clueless when it came to public policy, but also when it came to even understanding how the private sector institutions that funded entrepreneurial businesses really worked, our understanding was pretty limited. So 
I ended up coming up to Harvard and with the studying in the economics department, but with the support of the business school, which engaged in a little bit of venture capital of its own, did a thesis looking at the early days of the venture industry and how it was evolving, ended up making my way to HBS after graduation. And soon thereafter, in addition to doing the usual thing of publishing various articles, he also introduced an MBA class here called Venture Capital and Private Equity, which three decades later is still chugging along, going strong. And needless to say, the focus of what we do in the class has evolved over time. But the interest on the part of students and in the private capital market has remained strong. Also do, we have a Private Capital Research Institute, which is a nonprofit, as well as co-running with my frequent co-author, Victoria Ivashina, the Private Capital Project here at Harvard. A lot there, and congratulations on not so much a great career, which it speaks for itself, but being willing to help educate the rest of the world. And there's a signature line, Josh, that I've used a lot on this platform and elsewhere, which is, it's not easy being an allocator. We're going to talk about commitment strategy, which I think used to be a simple arithmetical exercise. It's uh, become so much more complicated, and you've done some recent research on that as well. But before we get there, you've seen the development of this market, maybe from a vantage point that's different than most of ours. And in a stat I've used before, I began my career in the early 1980s, and Prequin, through The Economist, had a chart about the number of GPs in the private equity space. And back in the early 1980s, there were two dozen of them in the entire world. That's it. And I think you could almost argue it wasn't until getting into the 2000 timeframe in the GFC when really private equity accelerated. So it's still, on the one hand, you could say it's 40 years old, but I don't think it's anywhere near maturity. So maybe talk about where we are in the lifespan of private equity And if you have any stats, just to size the market. Sometimes it's hard to determine in terms of invested capital, dry powder, et cetera, but any stats you can have to size, it might be a good place to start. It is, as you say, hard to put a number on it just because it is transitory capital. And of course, in many cases, particularly on the private equity side, we see the $1 of investment being leveraged with debt as well, which expands the reach of the private equity groups. Similarly, on the venture side, even for every dollar venture fund is put in, increasingly it's been matched by things like mutual funds, hedge funds, sovereign wealth funds, and others going direct as well. It is challenging putting a number on it. One number that we used our revised textbook just simply because they told us we need a number was to look at the portfolios of U.S. pension funds. While certainly there is a lot more private equity in the portfolio today than was the case 10, 20, or especially 30 years ago. But when you look at the portfolios today, for every $1 of private equity, there's still around $8 of public equities, which of course is very different from what you see from, let's say, an endowment like Yale's, where the ratio would be the reverse. There'd be more in private equities than in public equities. So in one sense, it's much more than there used to be. And there's really been this exponential growth particularly, as you say, since the global financial crisis. But at the same time, it still remains relatively small vis-a-vis, vis-a-vis public equity holdings. The flip side of your question is, of course, a much tougher one, which is what's it going to be like in another 10 years? In particular, is this thing going to continue to grow at the same rate? 
almost certainly probably not, that there was going to be some sort of saturation. But to what extent are we going to see continued expansion, some sort of plateauing? And certainly there are examples of asset classes where institutions herded in and then pulled out subsequently. For instance, when you look at the enthusiasm for oil and gas exploration in the 1970s, followed by a withdrawal from that asset class. That's a harder question to answer. Of course, I don't really have a crystal ball, but I remain, you know, and we were very hedged in our textbook revision to say, well, here are a bunch of different scenarios and we're not going to choose between them. Nonetheless, I think that if you were looking for reasons for optimism, you'd really point to really the process of governance and value creation associated with private equity ownership and the difficulty that many corporations have had to really try to be able to clone that within the context of a publicly traded organization. So Josh, not to beat this up, but I just want to follow up on that for a second. If I look at where we are in private equity and then overlay the theme of democratization coming to the fore and fund X plus one is going to have more wealth management assets and X plus two is going to have more mass affluent. I just saw over the weekend, the SEC is again fiddling with the definition of accredited investor, perhaps making it more as opposed to less accessible in terms of access to the private markets. But ultimately, it seems like the average person on the street is going to have more as opposed to less access. And if that's the case, I wonder if the demarcation between public and private equity will be so bright. If I think about some of the the areas around less versus more regulation, less versus more concentration of a shareholder base, less versus more access, I think about a blockchain distributed ledger, digital assets, and more regulation. Do you see the distinction between private equity here and public equity here being so much of a black and white 10 years from now? I think you can make a few observations, one of which is that certainly there has been a degree of blurring. We can think about mutual funds investing in private equity. We can think about the extended hold periods in both venture and later stage investing, where companies that once would have gone public have stayed within private equity portfolios. The sharp line or the sharp delineation between public and private seems to be increasingly blurry. Certainly, you can make a case that in the old days, if we worked for IBM, we had some interest in the IBM pension fund, and they did a mixture of private markets as well as public markets. There was a sense that this was long-term money, and that as a result, it made sense to invest in illiquid stuff as part of it. In the world we are today, where everyone's managing their own, or most people are managing their own 401ks, you can say, Well, we also have long-term money now that we want to hold for decades until we want to do it. Shouldn't it make sense in the same way to have some access to private markets to complement the public market holdings? I think the challenge, of course, is the implementation. This is an area where we're still at the early innings on, and I think there's clearly several challenges, one of which is really creating a attractive product that does fair and does well for the individual investors. We know that not all, but certainly some of the things that have been offered to give medium upper middle class investors a taste of private equity have suffered either from adverse selection in terms of what's been offered or else too high fee structures and so forth. And then the second side is really this issue around regulatory compliance that you hinted at, that in a way, 
blockchain is amazing technology, but if you're running a private equity group, the last thing you want to do is have a situation where ownership interests are suddenly being distributed among people that you don't know where there's all sorts of danger of non-compliance. So the very things that make blockchain so liquid and attractive may run afoul of some of the regulatory considerations. And as a result, there's a room for evolution and innovation there as well. So I think that from a high-level case, the answer is undoubtedly yes, but clearly there's still work to do to figure out how to do this in a way that's both good for the ultimate beneficiaries, the semi-high-net-worth individuals, which doesn't run afoul of the rather complex and challenging regulatory environment. And if we have time at the end, we'll come back to this a little bit on generative AI and what that means in in the process. I think you gave a talk on this recently, but we'll park that for the moment. You also come out with some recent views in one of the journals on a commitment strategy. I don't want to ever say that was simple, but there used to be maybe a little bit of a process that you could follow. And if you had vintage year diversification and going through the J-curve in one fund while you had distributions on the other and you could have a slight overcommitment and be peace in the valley. You could have cash coming in, cash coming out. But Howard Marks had a famous memo he wrote back in 06, you can't eat IRR. You also can't eat NAV. So I think institutions like Harvard and every other allocator out there needs to have some form of liquidity coming their way. But it seems like liquidity has frozen up to some degree. And I just saw recently, I think this is a November, December paper that BlackRock put out, and we still have across all private markets, $4 trillion of dry powder. I was surprised that number was still so very high. So there's still a lot of money on the sidelines waiting to get in. So a wordy lead in, Josh, but how should we be thinking about it? How should an allocator be thinking about a commitment strategy in this brave new world? Let's start with the point that you hinted at, but it's worth underscoring which is that traditionally the industry has been pretty laid back around these kinds of issues. That certainly for much of the history of private equity investing for the typical institution, the private equity slice was quite small relative to everything else. And there was a sense that put money in, you got money out, and that things take care of them, take care of themselves. In the sense that there was an analytic approach, it really is benchmark really was what's often referred to as the Takahashi Alexander model over and named after two people at the Yale Investment Office at the time who came up with it, which basically provided what you might describe as a deterministic way of saying, what is the expected pattern we're going to see in terms of drawdowns and payouts from a fund? What is the mix of funds we have? And then using that to project out what the likely cash flow situations are going to be. And it would basically gave you an answer, which was great at one level, but also had some pretty serious limitations. And one of those is, of course, that the world does not adhere to the central tendency. We know what actually happens is sometimes things are much better, sometimes things are worse. But the one thing that's certain is we're probably not going to be right along that expected line. This model didn't really give an easy way to think about the range of outcomes and what would be the likely exposure and so forth. In addition, it really relied on a few very simple parameters. And certainly as a limited partner, often you had more information about this fund being relatively overvalued or undervalued, or we anticipate some sort of slowdown in terms of distributions over the next 18 months and the like. 
So what we've been inspired to do in our article in the journal Portfolio Management this summer highlighted was saying, how do you apply a more probabilistic approach to looking at, and in particular, essentially going back in time and looking at, so if you had, let's say, 30 private equity funds, different vintage years and so forth, could you go and say, let's do a series of random draws of 30 funds that look like that in terms of the mix between venture and buyout, between how mature they are, and then what the different vintage years were and how bunched together they were, and then see how those evolved over time and do that again and again for thousands of times until you get a sense of what the range of outcomes are. One of the added things about this approach, and so essentially then it allows one not just simply say, we expect to have $5 million of positive cash flow next year, but say in only 10% of the cases will we have negative cash flows, while in 90% of the cases we will fall between minus one half and plus eight million dollars in terms of cash flow. So it allows one to take more of a probabilistic view. It also allows one to incorporate things that you might want to look at, such as saying, what if today we're really like 2006 and we're about to fall off a cliff? What if we think that the venture portfolios are overvalued by 50% and there's going to be an adjustment there? And then having made those things, look at what the range of outcomes evolves there. I don't think it's the last word along these lines, but particularly in an era like today's where a lot of asset owners are now suddenly in a situation where they're saying, we've got a lot of money tied up in private equity, and we really need to have more of a fix of what's going on. It provides direction for thinking through how to address some of these challenges of really looking into the future and trying to understand not what certainly is going to happen, but what are the range of different outcomes that are likely to evolve? You'd mentioned earlier the ratio of, of public to private equity is eight to one. And if you think about part of a liquidity scenario, at least in the past, was a viable public market that could receive these exits. We're certainly not there today. But if you think about all of this money coming in to private equity and this $4 trillion of dry powder to be deployed, could strategic exits become the viable, or do we need to have functioning public markets if we are going to have attractive valuations in the private equity space? Because the exit is a big part. This really brings us to a paradox, which is an interesting one, which is on one hand, you can say it's virtually any private equity or private capital market in the world. Typically, more exits have been done through trade sales than have been done through IPOs. But at the same time, the IPO route seems to be something that's of vital importance and seems to be correlated with the success of the private capital markets. And you might say, why is that? I think a lot of it comes down to the fact that the public markets really provide a sort of sense of where the pricing is. Whether we're thinking about a restructuring mature company or a young venture company, valuations are incredibly subjective in some sense, that unless you're dealing with a buyout for a totally mature metal bending firm where it's just an annuity going forward, there's going to be a lot of judgment associated with valuations. And having that bright signal associated with the public markets does a lot to 
help confidence both on the part of sellers and acquirers in terms of this. So I do feel that if history is any guide, that having a healthy public equity market, despite the fact that most exits don't go through it, is actually really important as part of the process. It's hard to take the other side of that. But I do wonder, Josh, though, I don't want to say all the good ideas have been taken, but it seems like an algorithm's already thought about a missing gap in the consumer mix of things the consumer wants. And, and with a specific brand that the millennials fall in love with, there'll be a space for that, but maybe it's a flash in the pan. But I do wonder perhaps about a lot of these traditional finance, traditional business model, public companies want sustainability themselves in terms of their business model, and they have blind spots in their offering. And I wonder if some of these same public companies will be attaching on missing pieces through the private market. So maybe it's not a direct IPO, but it might be public markets become the consumer of missing pieces to their makeup. It's probably fair to say that the situation we saw in the 1990s, where we had a huge number of very young companies going public, sometimes only 18 months after their first venture financing, they were going into the public markets, was not really the optimal either. Because we saw not only is being a public company then costly, but now is, of course, much more costly in terms of the compliance with Sarbanes-Oxley and the various other regulatory considerations there. But also, just many of those companies weren't really, what's the phrase, ready for prime time, that the management teams just didn't have the sophistication and the systems in place to really be able to deal with the under the spotlight of being publicly traded. And we can point to many, many cases along those lines. So certainly the notion that this is something that's important to have, but is not a one-size-fits-all thing, or that everyone should aspire to go public, remains a very fair point. Getting back to something I think you mentioned a moment ago, based on some of this recent research, I think you wrote it down, maybe I didn't hear correctly, you talked about a random draw in terms of these GPs and trying to model it. Manager selection matters hugely, or maybe that is the only thing that matters to some degree. And I think this is what gives the Yales and the Harvards such a big edge because they've been at this a long time and not all GPs were created equal. So when you're doing research like you've done, How do you factor that in? Because the dispersion is very, very wide. And if you're going to be in this space, certainly before and after fees, you've got to make sure you have that GP that's up in that top quartile, at least well above the median, which could be thousands of basis points away from what might be the random draw. So how do you think about that when you have to do a holistic research study like you did with this commitment strategy? What you're raising is an incredibly important point, which is that from thinking about things from the public market context, we're used to thinking about indexes and benchmarks and so forth. And indeed, we know that looked over the longer term, there's a lot of bunching that happens in terms of public fund managers. That one year, the value investor may outperform and the next year, the growth investor may. But if you look over the long haul, the interquartile range between the 75th and 25th percentile across public fund managers is really quite modest. While in private equity, we know there's just incredible dispersion that's there. And in a way, that sort of pushes us. It really underscores how private equity is really different than the public markets and how just looking at central tendencies is likely to be somewhat misleading. One 
illustration of that from the recent work that Antoinette Shore and I did with State Street was looking at the fate of direct investments, whether co-investments or other kinds of investments alongside private equity funds have become so popular among LPs. And one of the things you might expect is that given that these investments don't have the two and 20 haircut, that typically the fees associated with direct investments, co-investments are much lower, that you'd have a huge amount of outperformance there. But in point of fact, they're really the performance of the co-investments after fees is really not that much different than that of fund investments, even though you've had much less of a haircut, which of course suggests that there's some element of adverse selection or that somehow the portfolio that is co-invested does not map the one that essentially is undertaken in terms of the funds as a whole. And what you see is perhaps not surprisingly that the LPs who are really good at choosing managers that are outperformed are also very good at choosing co-investments as well. Even if you look at not just the absolute performance of the co-investments, but actually look at the performance relative to the funds themselves. So I think that goes to underscore this point that our instinct to think about the central tendency or the benchmark is probably exactly the wrong way to think about this industry. And one really needs to think about the heterogeneity of managers and how that fits into one's decision-making. Maybe tied into that, Josh, the entry point matters a lot too, to a very large degree. And then what does private equity really even mean? Are you talking about buyout, growth, early stage, late stage VC? But now, and you mentioned co-invest, direct, and maybe secondary. So maybe just picking secondaries as one example, it would seem that that could be an interesting entry point. There's maybe a lot of merchandise that's been marked down, access to maybe a manager that you could not get access to in the first place. You're reasonably along the J-curve, great transparency into the portfolio companies. So not to lead you in one direction or the other, adopt my thought process, but what do you see as interesting entry points in the private markets as you sit here today? This will air at the beginning of 2024, and every vintage year brings new opportunities, new challenges, new risks. Where do you see the most value for somebody, an allocator that's trying to build out a private markets allocation? Of course, if I really knew the answer, I'd be in my yacht floating somewhere warm rather than in my office at Harvard. I think that the challenge is really one of figuring out the stuff that is, as you say, provides a fresh approach, but at the same time, isn't really that widely recognized yet. And I think historically, secondaries have done great because it's been documented both among the practitioner and the academic literature. There is a sense in which the buyers have typically gotten somewhat of a discount. And if you can get private equity returns, but get it at a 3 or 4% discount, you're probably going to do pretty well for yourself going forward. Plus, you've had the advantage that there are more mature portfolios, so you haven't had the long J-curve. It's been much shorter in terms of the liquidity to take on. The challenge is, of course, that in that case, at least, the news is out, that we've seen this huge inflows into the secondary markets. The natural worry is, as you have more and more funds competing for the space, to what extent does that buyer's discount start getting competed away just simply because one has so much of the proverbial money-chasing deals? I think that's a question we probably won't be able to answer for a few years, but it does give some pause. And in general, one of the 
challenges of investing in this area today is that it's become harder to create and hold on to a good idea. When you think about the endowments like Harvard and Yale, who got into investing in venture capital in the early 70s, it really wasn't to a decade afterwards that corporate pension funds wandered in there and another two decades before public pension funds and international investors, even longer. So they had a long lead time to be able to really monetize that insight without a lot of competition. When you look more recently, like for instance, when Harvard and other endowments went into doing forestry investments, I think it's within 18 months, some intermediaries were marketing saying you can be just like the endowments and do forestry investments. So we live in a world today which has a lot more transparency. And as a result, it's harder to hold on to really good ideas for a long time before you get that flood of money coming in in terms of competition. So I think the one thing that is clear is that it's not easy. And probably if your goal in life is to sleep well in the evening, it's probably not great that it sort of is really where a lot of the opportunities are likely to be ones where there is not just simply opportunity, but also a fair amount of risk as well. Just sticking with that transparency theme you mentioned a moment ago, but taking it in a slightly different direction, the transparency between LP and GP, these things go in waves and in cycles. And ultimately, what they both want is more return and profit versus less. But how they get there over what time frame, there can be maybe a slight reset of those alignment of interests. And when we talked a lot of LPs and GPs, as you do as well, and GP-led secondaries and NAV-based loans, and there seems to be, and then even regulation. There's now a case about private market regulation. The LPs seem to have one view and the GPs seem to have another. In terms of alignment of interests, how are we doing as an industry? And is there something more either the GPs can maybe put themselves in the shoes of the LP or the LP can maybe understand motivations of the GP? Or is that just the way the world goes around? Well, I think you've hit on perhaps the biggest question of them all. There's not an easy answer. If there were, people would have figured it out already. But I do think there are things that there's certainly room for improvement and as you pointed to, some of the innovations perhaps facilitated alignment and others of which may have actually introduced more misalignment and as a result posed some concerns. Victoria and I did write a book right before COVID called Patient Capital, which basically made the argument that made a bunch of suggestions for things that both LPs and GPs could be doing to really focus more on long-term opportunities in a way that would not only benefit returns, but also we'd argued benefit society as a whole, just simply because we do have so many intractable problems, which it seems that public funding alone is relatively unable to solve and where the application of some skill set of the private sector could make a lot of difference. I don't think the book has exactly changed the world, but hopefully there are a few thoughtful people who have looked at it and we planted some seeds that will hopefully bear fruit in the years to come. Well, I'll take a closer look and maybe the listeners can too. I don't think it's solvable, but understanding the motivations and the challenges of the other person usually get us back to a safe place. And Bogle talked about the GP serving two masters, and they do. They've got shareholders, in some cases, business partners and others, and then a client. They've got a couple of fiduciary duties that have different calls at different points in time, just being 
exceedingly transparent about that is maybe a good way to do business. Josh, maybe in the remaining minutes, I know you've done some recent thought about generative AI and what that means either within the investment process, what it might mean inside of a portfolio company for a VC or a private equity GP. But what is the current state of play? I sometimes feel everybody's talking about it, but I do think it's a bit of the camel's nose in the tent too. The adoption of it still has some limitations. You have to have a controlled data set. Otherwise, hallucinations become a very real world. So closing on a current and future topic for discussion and maybe for value creation. It's a great issue. As you sort of alluded to, we recently had a session with the Harvard Business School Private Capital Project and the our nonprofit Private Capital Research Institute to look at exactly this question with academic and practitioner perspectives. I think one thing we can say going in is that when we look at the history of these kinds of disruptive technologies, one thing we see is that the fusion process is not overnight, that it takes time to figure out how to use this stuff. And I think we can already see with AI some of the same evidence of the same thing, that as powerful as large language models are and some of the assorted tools, figuring out how to use them, particularly get humans and machines to work together, is by no means simple. And it's probably not something that's going to take place in 12 months or 18 months, but is really a decade-long process. Secondly, I think that there's certainly, it's fair to say that the process is probably going to be one that entails, that is going to have a very real effect on the industry. That when we think about everything from trying to do due diligence on a company which is operating in different countries and where information is in lots of different languages, to even thinking about the mix of companies and saying, this is traditionally a company we might like a lot because it's a very stable cash flow business. What is the potential of AI really disrupting the business model? There are going to be a lot of changes taking place. That being said, there is a lot of stuff to figure out. Certainly one complicated thing has to do with the privacy or the ability to reuse data. That if you use the almost all the groups we talk to are trying to figure out ways to essentially create private LLMs to make sure that you don't get leakage of confidential information to other people. Secondly, there's the issue of how do you figure out to use this when you know that there are some degree of accuracy problems? I love this email I got from somebody the other day who was like, I just asked for a bibliography on co-investments and the first three papers were people by like Tim Jenkinson and Antoinette Shore and myself and were completely reason were the right papers to look at. And the next half dozen papers were completely made up papers that sounded extremely good and they sounded really interesting to read, but unfortunately didn't exist in reality, yet had very precise citations that Chat GPT had produced. So in a situation, it's one thing which to have a little bit of amusement about an academic subject. It's another thing where you're making decisions of hundreds of millions or billions of dollars of limited partner money where you're not quite sure about the accuracy of what you're getting. And then there's just the question of saying these groups have traditional ways of doing things, which have worked very well. And how do you integrate the human processes and the human dynamics with the information and the insights that can be generated from artificial intelligence? So Will it make a difference? I think 99.99% confidence, yes. Is it going to be simple and easy and quick? 99% confidence, probably not. 
just given these kinds of issues and challenges. And maybe to complicate it even more, we as practitioners, you as an academic, myself as an educator, to some degree too, we're trying to figure this out in real time. And the regulators sitting back with the benefit of 2020 hindsight, and they're going to be codifying regulation four or five years from now on decisions we made here today. And I think I want to underscore a point you made, Josh, about privacy and who owns this data. We have GDPR in the Eurozone. We don't have a definition of privacy here. And ethics in a CFA or a CAIA program doesn't even contemplate some things that could be done with generative AI. So we really have to be very, very careful, very, very thoughtful, embrace these tools as value-adding tools, but really recognize that we're in uncharted territory here. So I think it's an important reminder and a good way to put a capstone in this conversation. Well, I've really enjoyed the chance to kick around these issues. They're fascinating ones, more questions and answers. That's what makes a good conversation. So thank you. Absolutely. So as I said at the beginning, Josh, it was 2014 when I had the great pleasure of giving you an award for uh, research excellence. And hopefully I won't have to wait a decade for that to happen again. And I think you are right at the epicenter of some very interesting, challenging and opportunistic events. And I think you're in a great spot. So hopefully we'll have you back sooner rather than later. But thanks for all that you do. Thanks again. Really appreciate it. Thank you for listening to Educational Alpha. I'm your host, Bill Kelly. Learn more about the Kaya Association and subscribe to the show at kaya.org. That's C-A-I-A.org. See you next time.